1: Episode 57 of The Bowery Boys, live at Carnegie Hall. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com.
2: Hello there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young, and I'm Tom Myers. And we're going to give you a very austere, high-minded episode. Yes, this week. we are
1: going uptown, if you will, or at least to Upper Midtown for an evening at Carnegie Hall. <laughs>
2: We have our tuxes on with our white gloves, Um, a night of classical music, jazz, opera. You'll be hearing a lot of different musical styles in this episode because a lot went through Carnegie Hall. We'll tell you some about, of course, its founder. Andrew Carnegie, as well as many men and women who worked behind the scenes into getting this significant performance space up and running.
1: Right. It may be named after Mr. Carnegie, but several other people came and touched the project, you could say, in stages. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, thank you.
2: And on those stages, every single person who is an iconic figure of music of all different kinds of music has performed at carnegie hall that's
1: a pretty steep claim greg and we're going to hold you to it literally everyone but
2: we the bowery boys (laughs) have performed at carnegie hall stay tuned but that might be
1: uh that might be in our future so get in line and join us as we dig into the story behind carnegie hall
2: Tom that was very gorgeous. I believe that was Gershwin's Piano Concerto in F. You are correct. Which right. debuted at Carnegie Hall, as performed by the New York Philharmonic in 1925.
1: That's right. It was George Gershwin at the piano. This was not George Gershwin we just heard, but um, right. he he was there performing himself.
2: I have to profess that we'll be talking about a lot of music in this show. A lot of it have not previously known a lot <laughs> about until we've until we've studied this as a topic. So if I mispronounce any artists or piece names, then I apologize right now. It's
1: actually pronounced artistes. i've already
2: started well tom lead me lead the way here how do you get to Carnegie Hall? <laughs> Situate the listener by taking us there directly.
1: Well, Greg, you just opened with the great joke. Ask it again, ask it yeah, again. How are, do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. I thought it was $2 on the F train myself, but... Um, well, I guess there are two punchlines to this joke, <laughs> but... Anyway, all joshing aside, you get to Carnegie Hall by going to Midtown and stopping at the corner of 7th Avenue and 57th Street. Carnegie Hall actually stretches between 56th and 57th and 7th Avenue. You could say that it's America's preeminent concert hall. It's named for Andrew Carnegie, uh, one of the richest men in history, who paid for Mm -hmm. most of its construction. Carnegie Hall opened in 1891, has been open ever since. Mm -hmm. We'll get into that story. You know, it's a rather fancy-looking building from from the street. It's done up in Italian Renaissance style. Uh Uh-huh. Now, from the outside, when you're looking at Carnegie Hall, it looks like, you know, there's a a main front door and you think that you're going to walk in and just walk right into the auditorium. But in fact, there are three performance halls inside Carnegie Mm -hmm. Hall. There's the main hall, which seats 2,800 people. There's a smaller recital hall underneath that main hall. Called Zankel Hall now. It wasn't at the time. Right. And then there's the Chamber Music Hall, which is now called Weill Recital Hall, which seats 268, so and that's upstairs.
2: Now, you said Weill Recital, yes. Recital Hall. It's you not Weill Recital Hall. It's not named. Like Kurt Weill. So it's
1: not named for Kurt Weill. correct? No, 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 no. No, it's named for Sanford Weill, who's the chairman of the Carnegie Hall board, and his wife, Joan.
2: Gotcha. So basically you have small theater, medium theater, and large theater Mm -hmm. inside of it.
1: It's a must-play spot for touring orchestras who come through New York, for classical performers, for famous conductors, jazz legends. There's only one Carnegie Hall.
2: Well, actually, there's not. There's many Carnegie halls. There's, sev- oh. there's several through. There have been several throughout the United <laughs> States, but this is. I
1: was trying to make a grand statement, <laughs> Craig. Okay, you're right. I'm completely wrong. You're I'm, right. There are many Carnegie halls. But
2: in fact, but this is the Carnegie Hall.
1: Now, are we saying Carnegie or Carnegie?
2: Well, you know that is a, a bone of contention because he himself referred to himself as Andrew Carnegie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe it is quite okay to say Carnegie Hall. So I think because it actually feels more natural saying Carnegie Hall, that's how I'm going to continue. Well, that's to how say
1: we it. said. But there's also Carnegie. I think there are three ways to say Carnegie.
2: Carnegie. That's
1: how we're Carnegie. saying it for the so rest in today's of the episode. podcast, we'll call it Carnegie. Anyway, I want to put
2: Carnegie Hall in a context for us here mm-hmm. because it opened in, in a very prosperous time for New York. This was the Gilded Age, or rather near the end of the Gilded Age. This was an age where high culture flourished in New York City. Now, as, as we all know from all the many podcasts that we've done from the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, unlimited wealth is being poured into the city, creating this flourishing upper class. I mean, we saw this in the Central Park episode, which was originally created as a place for them to go, mm. essentially. You know, these our
1: 30 minutes on whose park <laughs> is it anyway? Exactly.
2: But these, a lot of these were influences of European school. Society And a lot of New Yorkers wanted to emulate that and even improve upon it. So one of the things that came along with this is having this interest, whether real or feigned, in the higher social arts. In this particular case, when it comes to music in the mid and late 19th century, we're talking about opera and we're talking about what we call classical music Mm -hmm. today.
1: Which was, of course, all the rage in Europe, in, in Rome, in London, in Paris, and it needed a place, of course, in New York City.
2: Now, there's all, I mean, ever since New York started, of course, there's always been general venues to perform music, obviously, no, no matter what kind of music it is. Many of these venues had a wide variety of activities, though none were specifically for upper-class pleasures. Take Castle Garden, for instance, which we've talked about. You had things like Jenny Lind performing there. You had the American debut of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony at Castle Garden, but it was used for a huge variety of other different things. So finally, in 1854, became the Academy of Music, which was a performance space that held 1,500 people, and it was at 14th Street and Irving Place. And it was kind of referred to as the first real opera house in the United States. Later in 1861, across the water, Brooklyn would get, of course, their own Academy of Music, Brooklyn Academy of Music, BAM, which opened in its first location in Brooklyn Heights. Interestingly enough, both of these would burn down and get rebuilt. Oh. This is a, I hate to say this, but part of one of the enduring qualities of Carnegie Hall is that it was one of the few places that didn't burn down. <laughs> So finally, in 1880... We're knocking on wood. We're knocking on wood, please, yeah. In 1880, the Metropolitan Opera House was finally open, and this was the place where the upper crust not only went, but were supposed to go. It was much a dazzle of New York money as it was an actual performance space. Tickets were reserved for the upper wings of high society. The upper boxes, there were actually more boxes created than there were millionaires in New York, and in fact, one tier of them had to be removed because they couldn't can put people in them. Wow. I mean they could, there were probably a lot of people who wanted to hear opera, but they weren't of that class. So it just sounds kind of it's absurd now, the whole concept of that, especially how people clamor for tickets for things today. Back in 1842 was the debut of the or a version of the New York Philharmonic. It performed in many different venues and of course even performed outside, but didn't have a permanent home. A few years later, one of the conductors of the Philharmonic his name was Leopold Demarsch. He had a rift and actually spun off into another philharmonic called the Symphony Society of New York. This happened in 1878. Uh, He was also the founder of of another group which for choral music called the Oratorio Society and that was in 1873. Oratorio Society and the Symphony Society. So one's for choral music, one is for symphonic music and they're both headed by Leopold. They don't have a home. Well, they would perform in a variety of different spaces. Once the Met Opera House opened, the New York Philharmonic would open there. The Symphony Society would have problems finding spaces because, for instance, they could perform at the Met Opera House but they had to to stand in line, so to speak, with, of course, the actual opera company, with the New York Philharmonic, with traveling shows, with special performances. They didn't have a permanent home, so they needed to find a place of their own. Now, Leopold's son, Walter Damrosch, he would, in his own right, become a virtuoso conductor, particularly of Wagner operas, In 1885, Leopold, his father, would die, and Walter would become the head of these two groups, of the Oratorio and the symphonies. He was only 23 years old when this happened, Mm. so a lot of responsibility on his shoulders. So Walter and the Symphony Society are looking for a place that they can perform on a regular basis so that they can have regular people show up to their shows and they can actually develop a following. So knock, knock, knock. Here comes the man, the Superman to save the day, the multi-millionaire. Andrew Carnegie. Now, before I jump into how Walter and Andrew met and came up with the idea, I think we need a little tiny miniature biography of Carnegie, if you wouldn't mind providing one.
1: So we're taking a step back and we're going to jump back to 1835, where Andrew Carnegie is born in Dumferland, Scotland. Now the man comes over uh, with his parents and undoubtedly becomes what we would call an American success story. One of the richest men who ever lived. Some accounts have him as number two on the big list of rich men. Oh of all time, of right? Of all time,
2: yes. I mean that's incredible how they were able to someone someone sat with the calculator and figured out money based on current <laughs> conversion day rates. Values. Yes, exactly.
1: Yes. Right. He was a complex character, and we'll get to that in a second. But mm-hmm. He immigrated to the U.S. with his parents and started working in a cotton mill, doing menial tasks at the age of 13, literally changing the spools of thread for $1. 20 a week. He started working his way up, working in a telegraph office as mm-hmm. an operator and so on. And every step of the way, he would reinvest his money, a new idea or a promising business, eventually getting into railroad car manufacturers. Now, Carnegie's in Pittsburgh, and he got into metalworks. And through the 1870s, Carnegie was building Pittsburgh's Carnegie Steel Company. Now, by the 1880s, everything was about steel, Greg. Mm -hmm. And Carnegie- Yes, it was. (laughs) <laughs> developed it. He was developing an innovative method to produce steel for, well, the rails, mm-hmm. which were obviously exploding from coast to coast. Yes. He was along the way swallowing up his competitors. Long story short, <laughs> Carnegie. Is wildly successful and right. makes a ton of money. So you know it'd be easy to say, "Wow, he's just another titan from the late 1900s." A steel magnate. Yes, he is a steel a steel magnet. Yes, but, yes. <laughs> I think you can put him on the fridge, if you will.
2: On April 19th, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC.
1: In the 1890s, Carnegie's company was the most successful company uh, in the entire world. Carnegie, now, he he had lofty ideals. He corresponded with poets and with writers and with politicians and other intellectuals. He wanted to go back to school. He always wanted to learn more and do something that really mattered. He wanted to live relatively modestly and made a pact to give away his fortune by the time he died. And he gave away money to build schools and libraries and universities in the U.S. and also back in the United Kingdom. And, you know, he even gave money to build 7,000 church organs.
2: So that leads us very smoothly, thank you, Tom, to the meeting of Walter and... To Andrew and they meet in a very curious place I mean they I'm actually I'm sure that they've met before because Carney was on the board of the Oratorical Society but on April 22nd 1887 they both found themselves on the luxury Norwegian steamship the Fulda Now Walter was going abroad to study with a renowned European conductor Keep in mind, He's really young. He sort of inherited these roles from his father. He's still in his early 20s. Carnegie, meanwhile, was on with his young bride.
1: By the name of Louise Whitfield, 25 years his junior.
2: They befriend Damarosh on the steamship, and they actually invite him when he's done with meeting with his conductor to actually go over to Scotland and hang out with them, if you will, in their lavish castle. So he does, in fact, do that. And while he's there, he bends Carnegie's ear about coming up with a permanent home for the Symphony Society. In fact, it's often inferred that it's his wife who's really pushing for this. Uh, so he would return to the United States in October and would start buying up all these plots of land to build a home for the symphony space, which would become Carnegie Hall. He bought all these plots of land around 7th Avenue, you know, between 56th 57th Street. Now, at this time, it was like a lot of bars up there. It seems like there were a lot of bars everywhere in the 19th century. But, you know, because it was a little bit out of the way. So he bought up all these parcels of land just to get these saloons out of the way.
1: But he was also afraid that his workmen who were constructing his new music hall were going to run off and waste their money at these different bars. So <laughs> that's one way of preventing Just destroy the bars. Well, when just you have, shut them down. When you
2: have that much money, I guess that's one option for you. So who exactly built the Carnegie Hall? Um, well, it makes sense that he would get a musician to do it. His name is William Burnett Tuttle, T-U-T-H-I-L-L. He was an accomplished tenor, vocal tenor, and a cellist, and he was the chief architect on this. However, being a Carnegie project, there would be some more famous help along the way, including, as a consultant, Richard Morris Hunt. If that Uh name sounds familiar to you, it's probably because he built the Astor Home on Fifth Avenue around this time, and of course, most famously for the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty and many areas of Central park.
1: And he did what? He was a backup architect for this? Hunt
2: was a consultant, but where you see his imprint is the kind of the general design of the building. The Renaissance revival style is a direct influence of Hunt because he would actually popularize the style in the United States at this time. Mm-hmm. He was well known for the style. Now I find what kind of, is kind of ironic is that did you not say that Andrew Carnegie was made a lot of his money off steel? He did indeed. Yeah. Well, this building would one of a last reminder of the bygone day because it would in fact not be built with a steel frame. It would all be concrete and masonry, and later parts of it, as they were added on, obviously would have steel frames. But the original structure did not have it. The exterior would be in this lovely little terracotta and brick, lavishly ornately decorated interiors they originally designed a main hall a lateral hall as they referred to it which would con- eventually contain the recital hall and the chamber music hall which are the three original that still remain there tuttle's most enduring imprint it's acoustics you know it has it's still known today as having some of the best acoustics that a performance space has to offer in the world although it took many years to eventually complete the in, the entire complex in fact it only took about a year for the the main hall to be completed. Uh, it was started on May 13th of 1890, and it opened one year later. It was truly Carnegie's Hall. I mean, it, he paid nine-tenths of the cost mm-hmm. for it, or like $2 million back in the day. When they first planted the cornerstone of the building, it was actually done by his young, beautiful wife. Louise. And she used a sterling silver trowel that was made by Tiffany's. The reason I bring this up is because back then Tiffany's was all the way downtown, but with Tiffany's would later move up to 57th Street and is just now 2 blocks away from Carnegie Hall.
1: Imagine that. So, opening night was planned for May 5th, 1891. Damrush had planned a 5-day, 6-concert event for wow, the celebration and was planning to invite over renowned Russian composer and conductor at the time Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky for for the very first performance for the That's very incredible. first major performance mm-hmm. He would be conducting the Symphony Society and Oratorio Society and conducting one of his own pieces. Now, he was a nervous wreck. He was already nervous. Uh, He was (laughs) living in Russia. He was a closeted homosexual, and so that made him nervous. He had married a woman. Well, he'd married against his will, which Uh made him nervous. It made him nervous to stand in front of an orchestra, much less in front of a crowd of people. So he even had a style of holding on to his head because he suffered from some strange neuroses that his head was going to fall off. But he was
2: going to lose his head. It sounds, sounds like literally he lose his
1: head. So he would hold it with one hand to keep it on. So that's how he, he would conduct. When he arrived in the U.S., he was greeted by a real who's who of society people, went to his hotel room, sat down, and wept. And wow. that was his entrance to New York City. But his participation in the the opening of Carnegie Hall was major because he was the first big-time composer to visit the U.S. So it was already an event that he was here in the first place, Mm -hmm. much less opening up the new... Carnegie sure. Music Hall. The opening night, May 5th, 1891, the creme de la creme of New York society. Yes. You can imagine the Rockefellers and the Whitneys. All the, the families. All the and, families. And our Carnegies in their boxes lining the interior of the main auditorium and looking down upon the Symphony Society and Oratorio Society under the baton of Tchaikovsky. Outside, there was a traffic jam stretching for blocks upon blocks. And as you know, Greg, the concert hall was packed to over capacity uh-huh. i think some were even afraid that the walls were going oh to as a started.
2: matter of fact tuttle himself didn't believe that the columns would actually support the mass weight of all of these people so during the performance he actually left and studied the blueprints and it was just like so what he the too was
1: losing his head <laughs> he was
2: well you know it was opening night for his own building but it obviously didn't collapse
1: Carnegie was very pleased because he had succeeded in building a performing hall that was for culture. He had packed it in with society. A great evening.
2: And what it would do is like when you have when you start. This is starting off with the bang. Fortuitously, perhaps the very next year, um, the Met Opera was gutted in a fire and the New York Philharmonic had to move to Carnegie Hall. So you had both these dueling symphonies performing in Carnegie Hall.
1: So the New York Philharmonic and the Symphony Society were were both, both there using but, the same performance. Space. Yes,
2: I mean, and you can imagine the drama. I mean, they created such a rivalry. There is like nothing like a orchestral rivalry. <laughs> They merged in 1928. The two symphonic societies merged into what is called the Philharmonic Symphony Society of New York, which, of course, that's the official name now of the New York Philharmonic.
1: So there were two groups for like 40 years
2: well, yeah, I mean, there's no rule stating that they can't. I mean, we have two baseball teams. Why, why can't we have two Philharmonics?
1: That, it's, just, it's just that they don't, that's you know... a lot of drama. The
2: Mets and the Yankees don't play in the same venue every year. The next year uh, would bring in the very first lectures into Carnegie Hall. It was starting to be used for a wide variety of different things, not just for upper-class music. Believe it or not, in 1901, Winston Churchill spoke there. Of course, this would always be used for that and still is used for that today. People like Booker T. Washington, Teddy Roosevelt, Albert Einstein, later uh, Martin Luther King in the 1960s. They would have huge rallies there. And a lot of presidents spoke at Carnegie Hall as well. In 1893, it would be the debut of one of the most significant uh, symphonic performances that would debut at Carnegie Hall. And that would be Dvorak's New World Symphony a different kind of music would come to Carnegie in 1912 that would be their first jazz music performance. In many ways, this is one of the most important things that Carnegie Hall did. It just able to bring jazz up to the figurative uptown. Clearly, it's not the real uptown because a lot of jazz is further uptown in Harlem. But this would start the long road of getting jazz accepted into this sort of in the same realm as these other forms of music. And now jazz is performed there all the time. By the 30s, in 1938 alone, you had Count Basie and Benny Goodman first performing there. In 1943 was the debut of another very significant figure in the history of Carnegie Hall, Leonard Bernstein,
1: and in the end would conduct more than 200 concerts on the stage of Carnegie Hall.
2: Back to the fate of uh, Carnegie Hall itself, it actually had stayed in the Carnegie family up until 1925 when the estate sold the hall to a developer by the name of Robert E. Simon.
1: And Simon had made a pledge to keep Carnegie Hall as a music hall, at least as long as he possibly could. In the 1950s, however, the music business had changed. And remember that the hall was built as a place to, well, really rent out its main music halls to other performers and to groups. So they didn't really produce anything themselves there. It was the New York Philharmonic or the different societies that would rent out the different rooms. Well, the music scene had changed, and he couldn't figure out how to make money on the place. To try to make uh, ends meet, he offered to sell the building to the New York Philharmonic for $4 million. Sounds like a good deal. Kind However, the Philharmonic was already deep in negotiations to move over to Lincoln Center. Oh, so they were time. on their way
2: out anyway. And I guess at the time, people didn't really think that these two major performance halls could really compete with each other. And the Carnegie Hall was sort of on its way out.
1: Well, Carnegie Hall had to think about how it was going to pay its bills, and the New York Philharmonic booked up its rooms more than any other performing group. Uh They took up more than 100 nights a year, so their chief tenant was suddenly leaving. They were kind of desperate. Simon didn't know what to do, so he put the building up for sale in 1955. So he did want to save it, however, and he was willing to call off the sale if anything else could come up. Well, the only thing that came up in 1955 was a development project with this being the mid-50s. You can imagine what this is going to look like. <laughs> it was a plan to rip it down and construct a 44-story monstrosity in its place that was... Nice. I've seen it quoted fire engine red. Uh, okay. would have been would it have been st- incredible. It would have been
2: striking, I'm sure. Yes. Like you like wanted to physically strike it. Strike
1: it. it. It was struck, actually, after Life magazine published the plans in its September 9th, 1957 issue. Bright red and ugly thing brought the nation's attention to the demise of Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. And the deal was called off, but nothing was in its place. There were, there were no other choices. Mm-hmm. And March 31st, 1960, was a date set for demolition... Of Carnegie Hall. The 1960s must have been a kind of rough time, you know, for classical architecture, <laughs> neoclassical architecture. Yes, it and was. There was already resistance in place, namely mm-hmm. the, quote, Committee to Save Carnegie Hall, which was organized by Isaac Stern, the violinist. He headed this organization to save Carnegie Hall and actually took it all the way to the state. And in 1960, the state legislature passed a resolution to sell Carnegie Hall to the city of New York for $5 million. So oh, they excellent. actually sold it to the mm-hmm. city for $1 million more than it was offered to the New York Philharmonic. Oh, you're right, right. And formed the Carnegie Hall Corporation to buy the building. Stern was elected the president. The, the hall was thus not only saved, but it was transformed into a public institution run by the city.
2: And it's funny that it happens at just this time because I think around this time in the early 60s is when Carnegie takes on a new focus. It still has classical music and opera there. However, it also is bringing in a lot more diverse kinds of music. In 1961, probably one of the most famous Carnegie Hall shows uh, that I would, of course, be speaking of Judy Garland. Uh, She would have her live at Carnegie Hall show here.
1: Incredible. The 1950s had also been kind of rough on her.
2: (laughs) 18 years later, by the way, her daughter, Liza, would also perform at Carnegie Hall. Even sort of more outrageous compared to what was the original intent of Carnegie Hall. In 1964, rock music comes to Carnegie with two very legendary performances by the Beatles. This opens the door, of course, for artists like The Doors and Bob Dylan. Even Pink Floyd performs at Carnegie Hall. In uh, 1965, the debut of Leontine Price, who is one of the most enduring performers of Carnegie Hall. She debuts in 1965. Uh, in 1974, another Famous operatic diva, Maria Callas, has her farewell performance here at Carnegie Hall. Now, by this time, a lot of different renovations are going on through the 80s and 90s. By this time, in 1987 and through 89, that massive Carnegie Hall tower sprouts up along the side of it that stares down on it and doesn't have much to do with classical music. but the
1: Well, it does afford it now a little bit more wing space so that the stage has expanded off into yes, the back of it. Yes, so.
2: very true. In 1991, we thus created the Carnegie Hall Archives because, believe it or not, they didn't have an archives. And finally, in 2003, Zenkel Hall. Was open. That's the brand. That's the newest edition.
1: Many New Yorkers will also remember that throughout the '90s and I think in the '80s there were movie theaters actually downstairs in Carnegie Hall in the former Recital Hall. Those were shut down in the late '90s and converted into Zankel Hall.
2: Today, I mean, you, I mean, on top of all of the greats, the great names of classical music. I mean, you can literally see that great diva of. Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling <laughs> performed there. Uh, David Sedaris, Ray Romano. I mean, you just, you have literally, it's used as a premier performance space. But one group that you will not see perform there is the New York Philharmonic. However, in 2003, there was this wild scandal. Do you remember this, Tom? I when do. this in the, hit the I newspapers? Do. It was a
1: big deal. The New York Philharmonic announced that it was leaving Avery Fisher Hall over at Lincoln Center because the acoustics were crummy and that it was moving over to <laughs> Carnegie Hall, where the acoustics were better. Well, and- this should
2: just show you how. I mean, Carnegie Hall still has the best acoustics in the city. Well, the, even Philharmonic thought so. Well, this sort of fell apart, and so it didn't. The move didn't actually happen. The new season starts uh, this fall, and in particular, they're going to do a huge fall retrospective, fall winter retrospective on uh, Bernstein.
1: So, thank you for joining us for our performance at Carnegie Hall.
2: Check out the blog, uh, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, for updates on New York City history and some pictures from this
1: very show. We're going to leave you with just a little bit of taxicabs honking in Gershwin's American in Paris, which we mentioned debuted in December of 1928. Have a great New York week,
2: whether you live here or not.
1: See you next week.